Welcome back. This is the second half of the podcast with Vin Varghese, where we're talking about paediatric emergency medicine. So we've talked quite a bit about neonates. What about toddlers? So toddlers present with different complaints that we see in the adult population. What sorts of things should we be looking out for or doing differently in toddlers than we would do in adults? In toddlers, again, a lot of the stuff we see is illness-related. Coughs, colds, feverish children. It's probably a group of children that we see quite often. And children and toddlers particularly are more prone to getting sort of upper respiratory tract, ENT type infections than adults are. And you'll find the majority of the causes of high temperatures related to that, unlike adults, which can have a variety of causes. If we just think about the feverish child in particular, I try and keep it simple. So after I see a feverish child, my first question is, do I know what the source of the fever is? And if I don't know a source, then it's very difficult to discharge the child. And what I mean a source is balance of probabilities. If a child is snotty and really snotty and coughing, but you look in their mouth or throat and that you can't see anything, they've still got an upper respiratory tract infection. They don't need to have red ears or some tonsils or a red throat or whatever. But it is the true child who's got a temp and not got any specific symptoms to warrant that. So if you haven't got a source, then I would be not happy discharging the child. So that's my first question. Yeah, and I would add to that that you do actually need to look quite hard for these sources. So you shouldn't be referring on a child who's got a fever without a source unless you have done some really, I suppose, basic in children, but you might not think about it straight away, examinations and investigations. I would advocate that you always look in the throat and in the ears of every child that you see. One, you'll get better at doing it, some children are very wriggly, and you'll learn how to get parents to hold children to enable you to do that. But looking in the back of somebody's throat and making sure that you actually have a good clear look at the back of their tonsils it can be challenging at times but there are very very few cases where you cannot look in the back of a child's throat and so it's not really acceptable to refer a patient into a paediatric specialty for them to find out that they've got tonsillitis and you've just not looked hard enough for it. No I completely agree I mean there are very few children that I, you know I've not been able to examine the ENT of. It, it is a matter of watching somebody examine somebody and getting parents to be quite harsh in terms of how they're holding the child. Or sometimes even asking the nursing staff to help you with that. So if you're at the children's hospital, you'll obviously have paediatric nurses. And a lot of the other placements where you'll be at in ST3 have paediatric dedicated nurses. And they know how to hold children. For ENT exams, also for bloods and that sort of stuff, they are very familiar with it and they know the tricks of the trade in terms of doing that. So if you find yourself with a parent or a guardian who isn't willing to hold their child firm enough for you to look in their ears, ask if they would mind if one of the nurses helped you and then you you will have a better chance of being able to see something. Also, we would add at the moment with COVID that uh, ENT examination may not be at the present appropriate because of high risk of uh, aerosol generation. So you may not be able to do that examination. If you are actually looking in a child's throat and there is any suspicion of COVID, which there obviously will be if you've got a hot child, 
then if you have to look in the back of the throat, it's classified as an aerosol generating procedure and you need to be in the appropriate PPE to do that. And so if you have a good clinical suspicion that this is tonsillitis, then you just treat it as though it is. Yeah. But yeah, so as you coming back to the point, not knowing the source is not a diagnosis of incomplete or poor examination. It is a sort of differential or feeling after you've done your best and properly examined the child. Then the other aspect of a child without a source is if you've done a proper ENT examination, you don't have a source and they've got a temperature, fine, then you can ask for a urine sample. Urine sample is not a screening tool for every child who has a temperature because it can be nigh-on useless with the odd positive leukocyte and you are causing the department to follow up loads of unnecessary urine results to trace for an investigation that wasn't appropriate. Yes and outside of Manchester Children's Hospital you are not going to be getting your microscopy results back really quickly so whilst you're at the kids you can get a white cell count back quite quickly off your urines which can actually help when you're diagnosing that child in terms of whether they've got a high white cell count therefore it confirms your diagnosis and you're going to send them home on antibiotics or whether it it rules it out you're not going to get that in a lot of your non-tertiary centers for pediatrics so actually you could have a dipstick that we know dipsticks aren't very accurate anyway doesn't tell you an awful lot it might falsely reassure you or it it might throw you the other way and actually does it really add an awful lot to your clinical assessment unless there's a really good reason for you doing it. It can be appropriate if you don't know the source or if people who've had persistent temperatures who you think might be inerty but you know they've had it for five or six days and they've been a bit off colour, they've had a bit of vomiting and in that sort of aspect it might be useful but it's not a screening tool for every hot child. In the selected few it is, it is an important test. And you can, you know, there are nice guidelines about diagnosing UTIs and how to manage them, which is a, a, another topic in itself. What about bloods? So, I would say that the majority of children do not need bloods, and I know that you may want to get some cannulation signed off or whatever. But over ninety percent of the children we see, we don't do bloods, and even if of the ones that do need bloods. A lot of them we let paediatrics do it, not because we can't do it, but if it's a test that's not going to change our management, if it's a test, depending on what your setup is, where they're on a paediatric ward with a play specialist and other things in a nicer room. Also, you've put Amatop or Emla on, so you've got to wait 40 minutes for that to work. So actually, unless you need the bloods because it's an emergency situation, so you've got a child in recess that you think is septic and then obviously you'll want to send bloods off, then you want to make it as pleasant an experience as possible for the child. And that is things like putting magic cream on and if someone has a play therapist using a play therapist using distraction techniques in terms of the cannulation skills and getting blood from the child so that you don't put them off ever having bloods ever again in their lives. Indeed. And the, the most important piece of equipment for cannulation or blood taking is a paediatric trained nurse or a nurse who's used to dealing with children. You'll see trainees get their stuff and wander in by themselves and try and get parents to help them a little bit. And you, you need the minimum of two people going in and one of them, colleague or a nurse who's uh, dealt with children and knows what to do and, and what the equipment is about. 
And it makes a phenomenal difference to have somebody in that room who knows how to hold a child's arm or hand still whilst you're doing those bloods. It's probably the single biggest thing that makes a difference in terms of your success rates of getting bloods from a child is having somebody know how to hold them properly. Yeah, as we said, so the majority of children we don't do bloods. It's only children we think are sick or the odd child who's well, he may be coming with a particular rash or something very specific where if we had normal blood so nothing concerning and the child's web, we could discharge from A&E, we may do the bloods. But the majority is if the child is critically unwell or needs some immediate treatment, then we'd be doing cannulation and bloods. So there are a couple of extra circumstances that probably come under blood taking in children which I would put into children who present with low blood sugars and therefore in that sense testing children's blood sugars as point of care tests and then on the back of that you might sometimes do capillary blood gases where you don't do full blood tests. Yeah and particularly in younger children if you're going to do a BM you might as well do a capillary gas because it's it's virtually the same process. And it's, it's, you know, it's far more useful. It will give you a BM and it will give you a whole host of other information as well. And the hypoglycemia uh, aspect is very important as well. And you need to look at your local policy. It varies subtly in the interpretation from place to place. Uh, some places where if you know a trigger for the hypo and they've, you've tested their ketones as well and they're high and you've got a history of somebody who's not taking as much because they're well and not eating, they're happy for that to be treated and carried on in the first instance. Other places would be that if we have to understand hypo is a BM less than 2.6, so it's not 3.5, it's not 4, it's not a slight decrease. Then other places, if you can, you do the barrage of tests because if you correct the hypoglycemia, there are certain causes, aspects of the blood test will normalise or which you can't measure if you measure them when they have a normal blood sugar. Yes, and then what the paediatricians have to do is they have to bring the children into hospital, wait until their blood sugar drops again before they do those tests. And obviously that's not a great experience for the child, so that's something that we want to avoid if we can. That's right. Going back to toddlers, so we've looked at the, the feverish child. main aspect is the source, and we've talked about how you might decide whether there's a source or not and how important ENT examination is. Another aspect which is true for toddlers or children of any group is in those people you're going to discharge. What I see is that people are so relieved sometimes that you're finally getting rid of the child back home after they've been screaming or whatever. But time spent with proper discharge advice explanation is really important. And also doing another set of OBS before the child goes home. So we spoke earlier on about the importance of having a full set of observations by somebody who knows how to do them in a child. You shouldn't really be discharging children who've presented with illness from the department without two separate sets of observations. So if you're at the point of sending a child home, you should really get somebody to do a repeat set of observations whilst you're getting together your discharge advice card and all the other bits and bobs that are going to go with letting that child go home. Yeah, that, that's exactly right as well. And also, when we're going through the OBS, one thing that people sometimes get a bit confused about is temperature and tachycardia in children. So if you have a temperature, you're going to have a tachycardia. However, it is okay to discharge a child with a temperature. It's okay to discharge a child with a tachycardia. However, you need to show that the tachycardia is related to the temperature. So if you give them paracetamol or a, a, another antipyrexial, that when the temperature comes down, 
that the tachycardia is settling. It doesn't need to go back to completely normal, but there is a response as the temperature comes down. Because what we've seen in children who've had unexplained or sudden deaths, when you look back on their ops charts, one of the key things is they've had an unexplained tachycardia, is one of the early signs. Yes, so if you treat their high temperature with paracetamol and you see their temperature come down, but their heart rate continues to be at the same rate or higher than it was before, then obviously you should be concerned about that. As you said, that goes back to a good set of first OBS and a good set of second OBS. So you've shown that you've assessed the child at two different points and you, you're happy that that point, you know, that the child's been discharged. And related to that, another judgment call which you don't get in adults is the competency of the parents. There is a certain subset of children who are on that borderline or of they need a slight watchful brief. The parents you feel are incapable of doing that through the interaction that you've had and they don't have very much understanding of the illness or how to look after their child, then that is whatever the paediatrics may say, but usually they're quite, um, actually quite sympathetic, is, is a valid reason for admission. Yes, parental anxiety on its own can be a reason to admit a child because if the parents or guardians are so concerned about the illness that they have that they don't feel as though they are capable of looking after them at home, then they might actually need support, especially if it's the first child that they've got. They might need a little bit of support and reassurance, and it's fine to bring them in to an observation unit within your ED if you have one, or refer them up to paediatrics for a period of observation. And really, we're using that observation time as an assessment for these children and also for some education time for the parents and guardians. Exactly right again. And my own belief that the best investigation that you have with a child this time, if you had one thing that you could do, is just to watch them for a period. And that will give you an idea of how they're doing. We have the benefits of that in emergency medicine to a certain degree in our paediatric areas. Always take every parental concern very seriously. It's okay for a paediatric team who've got more experience than we do, who've observed this child on their ward for a bit, gone through A&E, and after that to say, in rare cases, you're probably, you know, overreacting or, you know, let's educate you on the disease process. You might be being a bit anxious about this. But to dismiss concerns or fears that a parent has in A&E is a very, very dangerous thing to do. Whatever you might think about the competency of the parent in front of you, they know their child better than you know you are ever going to know. And really, you're looking at a change from normal. So you might look at that child in front of you and think, actually, they, they seem fine. But the fact that they are different from how they normally are at home to their parents is really a red flag in terms of warning signs. So it's definitely something that you should pay a lot of attention to if a parent says that they're worried about their child. Okay, so we've talked really there about the assessment of sick children. We've covered neonates, we've covered toddlers. In terms of older children, I think the the most pertinent thing to say about those is, as we've said with younger children and bloods, we still rarely do bloods on that kind of older child, teenage, adolescent group as well. Yeah. And so it's something that you have the potential to learn about and transfer back into your adult practice afterwards. And it is that fact that you should only be doing investigations if you think they're going to alter your management plans. And so in adults, we often do lots of blood tests just because we can and because they get done at triage. Whereas 
we don't do that routinely in children you only do them when you actually have to do them in terms of injury wise with children we've talked about always having a greater suspicion about non-accidental injuries and making sure that we think about that with every case that we see is there anything else on injury that you wanted to mention i think in terms of the seriously injured child there's two things i'd like to mention one is how we investigate seriously injured children and the second thing is where is that child best managed okay i'm going to add a third thing in for us is analgesia okay let's Go back to number one. So um, it'd be worthwhile when we're talking about a major trauma type child that presents to you. If we look basically at the investigation, it'd be useful to read through the Royal College of Radiologists guidelines on how to image children. Children and imaging and radiation is something that is a considered process and not a reflex reaction. There's proven links with A, how much radiation you get and B, how young you get it in terms of risk of a neoplastic or cancer type process in the, the future. So there's a dose response and there's also, it's dependent on what age where you get the radiation. So in major trauma, we do segmental scanning, scanning and imaging. So in adults, the theory is if you injure your, you know, your pelvis and your head, you know, well, something's gonna have to happen in between. So let's just image top to bottom uh, and, and, and do it. And often in adults we will image with CTs a, a full pan scan from head all the way through to pelvis based just on mechanism alone as well yeah. which is not something that we would think about doing in children. No. So in children image only if you suspect an injury in that area and then you can image separate segments uh, depending on your suspicion. One thing to mention is, so in a chest, if you don't see anything on a chest x-ray, the incidences of severe chest injuries in children are sort of uh, rare. I've yet to put a chest strain in a child in, in, in a trauma situation. But the guidelines say if the chest x-ray is normal then, and you've got no other ongoing concerns, then you don't need to do any further imaging of that. And same with the pelvis, if you suspect a pelvic injury then an x-ray is fine. This sort of ties in with my second point about where a child should be managed. So there is the major children's trauma network and in this region the two major trauma centres are RMCH and Old Hay and it depends which hospital you are which one you're linked to. So the majority of us in this region are linked to RMCH but Blackpool is linked to Old Hay it can vary as well, so these rules aren't set in stone. With COVID recently, a lot of the paediatric major trauma from the north of the region got diverted to Older Hay, whereas we would normally go to Manchester Children's Hospital. Also, when there have been major incidents in the past, trauma has also been diverted elsewhere. So the hospital in which you're based will have one place in which they normally send their paediatric major traumas or which you are to discuss your paediatric major traumas with but there are certain times where things might follow a slightly different path and you might need to speak to the different hospital within the region because they do work together in that sort of way. And I would say that if you're not in a major trauma centre, so you're in a trauma unit, then if you're thinking about a child that needs imaging more than a CT head, you should be discussing with the trauma team leader at whichever centre is taking your trauma at that moment. So usually the 
trauma team leader is a consultant who's based at RMCH or Alderhey, and they will give you good advice about whether to carry on with what they're imaging that you're doing. Or in a lot of instances, if you're having to scan more than one region, is to transfer the child as quickly as you can to the major trauma centre for imaging. The difficulty is scanning more than one area, say more than a CT head, A can be time consuming, B locally is reported by non-paediatric radiologists so they can miss subtle injuries. And so even if you pick up an injury then you've just delayed the process of getting the report and then getting the child to sort of some definitive treatment. And also getting the images to the people who are going to do the definitive treatment. Even though we would like to think that online imaging that we have now is available everywhere, depending on where you are in relation to where your trauma centre is, sometimes it can actually take a long time to push those images through. And actually, had the child been transferred, the imaging done there, and then the surgical team or orthopaedic team or whoever be able to see those images straight away that would have been time saving for the patient yeah so those are the i mean i won't go into more detail about which scans you do when those are in the guidelines but having that appreciation that we're careful and you know there are guidelines and then deciding where this child should be scanned and where you are at that moment whether you're it's a different conversation if you're actually in rmch uh, or whether you're in a trauma unit and how you're going to transfer the child uh, is important to think about early and get advice. And if you need advice, ring the trauma team leader at your major trauma team, major trauma centre for children. Yes, and don't be put off and think that they won't want you bothering them or interrupting them. They are there to take referrals from the region and to provide advice on this because they obviously see a higher proportion of these because they cluster together at those centres because we have very few paediatric major trauma centres and the people that you will speak to will be very happy to give you advice on things so don't feel as though you've got to try to manage it locally just pick up the phone and ask them for help. That's right yeah so I don't think there's much more in terms of trauma side we've talked about being aware of safeguarding in terms of injury that's the most important bit of your assessment is that mechanism of injury and does it fit in with the injury that you see before you? And then there are variations on depending on what fracture injury you see. But the major trauma side, it's rare to see major trauma in a, a trauma unit. But when you do, try not to get carried away with it and realise where the best place for the child should be. Okay, so that brings us really on to our third point with injured children, which is analgesia. So we do this a little bit differently in children than we do in adults. Yeah, when we talked about assessments in the child who's ill and having that rapport, in the injured child, if the child is in pain, your assessment is near useless. And also, it's a bit you know inhumane just to not deal with that, because not only your primary survey, but everything that happens after that will be helped if you gain the trust of the child, give them decent analogies, you make them feel happy, and they trust you as a doctor. The parents trust that interaction, and everything goes a bit more smoothly. If you uh, fail to spot that or deal with that quickly, then uh, it can become a nightmare. So in children, there are methods of giving analgesia. One of the best methods for a child who's in severe pain is intranasal medication and it will depend on where you are we use intranasal dimorphine 
and we use intranasal fentanyl. Depending on where you are and depending on what availability of either medication. I think there was a shortage of intranasal dimorphine. If you use the, the, the chart in terms of weight and uh, what to prescribe, you can have fancy aerosols, sort of uh, things at the end of the syringe, but usually most people just squirt it up. It works well, it works quickly, and in most protocols you can repeat the dose again uh, one more time. And most departments will have a protocol for this or a chart that tells you how much to prescribe for the child's age or the child's weight. And I would just always check your doses with children. It's very easy to get doses wrong with children. So always check against the charts that are there before you give it. And the nursing staff will have experience of how to administer these drugs as well. Yeah. And with that, once the child's a bit more settled, I would always add in some paracetamol and ibuprofen along with that for analgesia, uh, which lasts sort of a, a, a lo- slightly longer term in the, in the background than just that. Then you have the options of oromorph, you have the options of IV morphine if we get to that sort of stage. But that's, again, it, it's getting a bit more specialised and fiddly doing that, whereas intranasal dimorphine, most departments are used to. You can get it quickly, you can give it quickly, and it works really well. Yeah, and it works quickly uh, as well as working well. Yeah. So it will gain that trust quite quickly as well during the consultation. I suppose the only other bit on analgesia that I think it might be worthwhile mentioning is free flow nitrous as opposed to demand use of Entinox. Yes. So with children, to try and explain to a child how to use on-demand nitrous even in the older child, you're fighting a losing battle for them to either use it properly or take the breath, whatever. And it's because of that, it's ineffective. There are departments where you've got free-flow nitrous. So you've got uh, nitrous oxide from a sort of wall socket, which you uh, mix with oxygen. So you've got 50% oxygen and 50% nitrous. And then you can deliver it through a uh, non-rebreathed mask. And it's usually the litres per minute is roughly the age of the child and it works very well. They just breathe normally and uh, it, it, you know, it works far better than Entinox. Okay, so I think we've probably covered most things there. Is there anything else that you wanted to mention? Going back to starting off as a CT3, I would say the best approach is when you start off, everybody's expecting you to ask questions. Especially if you're starting off in your paediatric bit, they're expecting you to be uncomfortable be asking lots of questions. I would, in that first two weeks, see as many children as you physically can. And really push the boat out and have that sort of, while, they're, while you're in daytime hours, while you've got support, depending where you are, before you start your night shift as a, um, a CT3 in some places where you might be seeing children. Use that opportunity to see as many children as you can. And as I said at the beginning, the difference between a consultant and the junior is just the amount of children they've seen. It's not a knowledge thing. So we're more comfortable because we've seen more children. So do go in and push the boat out and see as many children as you can when people are expecting you to ask when you might feel as a silly question or anything else out of the way with and get that experience done early. 
yeah, your consultants will essentially expect you to ask about every single child that you see. And so don't feel as though because you're an ST3 and it's that step up to your first kind of supported reg role that you should know how to do these things. We have no expectations that you'll be able to see and treat sick and injured children on your own. So just ask about everything and get as much experience under your belt as you can. And the last second thing is at CT3, ST3 level, you are in that position where as you progress, you're almost regarded as a full registrar as, as people get comfortable with you. But be very, very wary of junior colleagues asking you advice about children they've seen. It's a whole different ballgame giving advice about children as to adults. And you may want to double check the advice that you're giving them with a senior or, or a consultant. But at the bare minimum, you must see every child that you're giving advice about. Whether you think it's a, a tiddling finger injury or something more, so you must see the child uh, and have that experience, see the child and, and the behaviour and everything, and then you might find that it's completely different to what be, is being presented to you because the junior will have even less experience of seeing a child and knowing what cues and everything to pick up than you have. So never give advice for a child without seeing the child. Okay, thank you very much, Finn. We've covered quite a lot in this podcast. We don't expect you to remember absolutely all of it. And actually, as part of the Intro to ST3 course, we're very lucky that Vin has created some amazing online resources for us, and you'll find a link to that within the ebook that has been sent out as part of the course. Yes, yeah, so um, it's essentially a link to an Evernote notebook, and there is two books. One is a general principles notebook, which essentially gives similar sort of stuff to what we've been discussing in the podcast. General principles about injured child, severely ill child, other tips for dealing with safeguarding, that sort of thing. So it's uh, philosophical and practical, that sort of sort of level. The second book is a list of conditions and protocols so you do need to check with your local uh, hospital whether they follow it but it goes through individual uh, conditions from head injury to you know other bits and other links to other uh, sort of resources that are on the the, the notebook for uh, specific conditions it's not covers everything but it covers most of the stuff that you might likely see as a ct3 great well thank you very much for giving up your time this evening then Thank you for inviting me, Kirsten. You're very welcome. So, thanks for listening, guys. Stay safe, and we'll see you soon. Bye. See you.